really going on right now with medical office buildings? And what do the demographic trends suggest will happen in the years to come? I asked G. Evan Bennett, the founder of Anthropology Capital and the Seattle president of FIABSI, to discuss some of his ideas and research. So thank you, Evan, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Gunnar, and I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to write an article. Well, that, that's really why we're here. We're talking about the article that you wrote for the summer issue of AFIRE Summit. Uh, I thought it was fascinating, interesting, and, and really kind of you got underneath some of the big stories uh, in terms of demographic shifts. That title of your, your article was Medical Office Leads the Way. So it, it sounds to me like you're pretty optimistic, uh, if not bullish, on what medical office looks like uh, going forward. It, it, it always has been a strong segment, right? But for the last 10, 20 years, medical office has been a pretty reliable segment in real estate. How do you think it might change uh, in the years ahead and, and why? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it has been a, you know, really solid performing asset class for a number of years. And I, I think it's, it's going to continue to be so for at least a couple more decades. And for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the healthcare industry itself is just huge and it's ever expanding. You know, I was just looking up some figures earlier today and it's like currently it's like 13, a little over 13% of the entire population, you know, in the United States is employed in the healthcare industry. And that's, you know, something that, you know, we've, we've, it's like I said, it's been, it's been growing for at least the past, you know, 10 years significantly, and it's projected to, to continue even more so over the next couple of decades. Mm -hmm. I, and they're just, yeah, just a number of factors uh, playing into that. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, the population is simply aging. I mean, for, for a long time now, you know, there's been all kinds of talk about the baby boomers, right? how they were just a huge population demographic and, you know, how basically society, you know, throughout the entire era of the baby boomers, society has had to change itself to accommodate all of these people, you know, through each stage of their lives. And, it, and it's just continuing into the, uh, the healthier industry I mean, as they age. I mean, they're now about half of them are beyond the age of 65 already. You know, the remainder uh, moving, you know, crossing that threshold over the next 10 years or so. You pointed out a statistic in your article that 10,000 boomers are turning 65 every day. That's significant. Well, that, no doubt about it. I mean, I mean, currently it's estimated there are about, you know, 72 million baby boomers in the country. I mean, and just to be clear, so baby boomers are the people who were born between like the years of 1946 and 1964. And it, as you point out, you know, 10,000 a day are turning 65, you know, essentially reaching the age of retirement. But, you know, what goes hand in hand with retirement, you know, as people age, you know, there are all kinds of, uh, yeah, but the human body is frail, I guess is the best way to put it. And as you get older, it seems like uh, your health deteriorates more and more. And, you know, I cite a couple of statistics uh, in the article about how most people over the age of 65, they're, they're currently uh, managing at least one chronic condition. And I, most of those people 
are actually managing multiple chronic conditions. So, yeah, even though, you know, we've seen all kinds of advances in healthcare, medical science and whatnot, I mean, we still can't escape the fact that nobody lives forever. And the older you get, you know, the, uh, the more your health typically deteriorates. So, I mean, that's part of the reason, you know, why I'm, I'm so bullish on medical office. Like that, that demographic is going to continue aging. Well, and, and you pointed out that as you age and as you have more of these conditions, you go to the doctor more often. Um, you, you had some interesting statistics about that in, in the article. Exactly. Um, can you share that in terms of, of usage and how it increases? To that point, I mean, there's, there are some statistics that were put out by the Centers for Disease Control, where basically, on average, uh, it looks like Americans, they go to, to see a doctor about 2.8 times a year. But, you know, it increases as you age. So if you're over 65, well, between 65 and 74, essentially, it's about five times a year. But if you actually make it beyond 75 years of age, you go about six times a year. And this kind of ties in with an interesting statistic. If we go back to the turn of the 20th century, the average lifespan for an American was... Uh, 60, 65. I don't have it right in front of me here, but something like that. As of 2010, uh, you know, the, when the most recent census numbers were published, they had life expectancy at age 65 being an, an additional 19 years, essentially, on top of 65, you know, suggesting that baby boomers are going to live to be to their essentially to their mid 80s on average. I, that's, I think that's a huge shift, you know, just over the past century, it's just the way that you know, people are simply living longer. And it goes hand in hand with the advances in medical science that we've been talking about. But I mean, that's but, but because they're living longer and they're requiring more medical services, it's just going to drive demand uh, for medical office, you know, for a couple more decades at least. Well, I mean, with that demand, I, I wonder how are we doing on supply? So, I mean, obviously there's a tendency because of, of, of the length of our pipelines in terms of real estate. Are we building enough? Are we building too much? Uh, you know, what are the risks that you see in terms of continued balance or lack of balance of supply and demand? Well, that plays into it. You know, as a matter of fact, you know, just going by, you know, data that, uh, well, data that's out there, anybody can look it up, I suppose. I happen to you know, pull up some, some data on CoStar to get the facts and figures. But I mean, it looks like nationwide, you know, there's currently about 1.2 billion square feet of existing medical office inventory. That's, yeah. You know, and I'm just one caveat. I mean, we're only looking at class A and class B properties, but yeah, that's just not enough. So about over the past 12 months, only 13.4 million square feet was actually delivered to the market. And most of that was pre-leased. Absorption is strong and, you know, vacancies are relatively low. I mean, or I mean, at least compared to general office. I think nationwide, you know, vacancy for a medical office is currently about 9%. Now, in some markets, you know, I'm in Seattle. In the Seattle market, it's actually less than that. It's closer to 5%. So obviously there's some variation there. But to really, you know, just answer your question as directly as I can, there's simply, yeah, there's not enough supply at the moment. And, you know, with demand ever increasing, that demand is simply not going to be met unless new product comes online over the, over the coming years. 
A lot of the discussions right now around office, regular office, is the numbers that we have had, say, pre-COVID are likely to change significantly uh, post-COVID um, as people are kind of rethinking how they use office space. Is there a comparative question mark around medical office buildings, as in the kind of decentralization of services? Uh, your ability to go to your local shopping mall to get uh, scanned or to have some physical therapy um, versus going to a medical office facility or going to a hospital complex. But also, certainly in the news more and more is this idea of telehealth, this idea of, and especially now in COVID, where you're not able to go to the, the doctor's office. People are doing things remotely. They're Zoom calling with their doctor. But as our phones and our watches are collecting data on us, uh, we're getting closer and closer to a model where we're able to do quite a bit of healthcare without actually seeing someone in person. How do you think that may change over time in terms of people's demand for medical office space? Technology is advancing, and it's something that we have to continue to monitor. Uh, yeah, not simply in regards to medical office, but general office as well. And just maybe one quick aside before I speak specifically about medical office. I moderated a, a webinar uh, just last week uh, for a, you know an industry associated association, uh, FIOPSI, that I'm, I'm affiliated with. The topic was PropTech. And we had a speaker named uh, Anthony Slumbers. He's actually based uh, in England. He, he consults with basically anyone and everyone who, in, who is invested in office properties. And he just he really gave a very compelling argument about how it's certainly true that everyone has adapted. It seems like has adapted almost immediately uh, to, you know, Zoom calls and working remotely and things like that. And perhaps rightly so, because the idea of going to an office just to sit in a cubicle from from, you know, nine to five and never interact with anybody doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, if, if that's the nature of your job, then there's no, need, there's no need for you to be in the office. But his argument is that going forward, a lot of that work will probably be done remotely and maybe even in the not too distant future, it'll be done by AI even. So why are we gonna need offices at all? Well, what is it that people are good at? I mean, they can collaborate. You know, they can use their imaginations. They can strategize. I mean, they can come up with good ideas, how to push the company forward. I mean, that's why people are going to come together. And you're still going to need an office to do that. Maybe you're not going to need as much office space as you previously did. But the the idea that office space itself is going to go away, it, it, you know, it, it just doesn't have much merit. It's just it's going to evolve to something maybe, you know, different than what we have at the moment. But it's still going to be with us for a long time to come. Now, you know, as far as medical office goes, I think you're absolutely right. Telehealth is a concern. There are a number of disciplines within you know, the medical practice that probably work pretty well using telehealth. You know, it's not always it's not always required uh, that the patient actually be there in person for the doctor to conduct an exam. I mean, I'm thinking of you know, something like uh, you know, psycho mental health issues. You know, if you wanted to go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist or whatnot, unless part of the therapy was that you have to learn to interact with people, you can probably cover a lot of ground just using telehealth. But having said that, I mean, there are just so many procedures that you simply cannot do without you know being in the same room with the doctor. Just innumerable procedures. And that's not gonna change. So, you know, it, it seems to me that even 
you know, if telehealth does continue to advance, I, at most, it's going to become you know, a, a complement of sorts to, you know, in practice, I'm sorry, in-person visits, because the doctors are still going to need a base of operations, you know, because not every sing single procedure can be can be conducted via telehealth. So they have to have some place where the patients that they have to see in person can can come for those procedures. And beyond that, I mean, unless they're going to start calling patients from their home, they have to have an office of some sort where they've got their their computers and their microphones set up where they can interact with patients via, via telehealth. And one other thing that I found really fascinating, I don't think this actually made it into the article, but part of the research that I did, I found a white paper that was published by a group called Advisory Board. Uh, it's a consultancy to the healthcare industry. And basically what they said was based on their research, you know, and this, this is probably not going to come as a shock to most people, but as people age, they tend to become less receptive to new ideas. And their research basically confirmed that, you know, as people cross this, you know, into the, the, well, the, six, the threshold into 65, age 65, they're going to be less and less likely to adopt uh, new technologies that come out. So, you know, baby boomers, they're probably not going to be very receptive to using telehealth, you know, in the near term. You know, Gen Xers, maybe, you know, if they're a little bit well, they probably are generally more tech savvy than baby boomers. They might be a little bit more accepting of you know new technologies like that. But you know, it's really not until you get to the millennials, uh, you know, the generation that was actually born into the digital age. You know, started using iPhones. You know, as soon as, as soon as they could hold them in their hand, it seems like it's probably not. You know, until they really start to age that we're going to see a really significant advancement in any kind of anything like telehealth or anything that's really going to greatly impact the demand for medical office. So I think we still, we still have many, many years to go before that becomes much of a significant concern. Something you alluded to though, the retailization, so to speak of you know, medical space, that is, I think more of a concern as you're finding more and more medical practices, setting up shop in retail centers is the more significant concern. You know, there are some reasons why that's always not an ideal situation. I, I'm just thinking of it from an investor's point of view, from the landlord's point of view. If you've got a retail center and let's say you have the opportunity to, to place a medical practice into your retail center, you're probably going to end up spending a lot of money on TIs. Yeah, maybe you can split it with the tenant, but I, and we're talking and we're not just talking about new carpet and paint. I mean, it, there might actually be some structural uh, changes that are needed. There might actually be, you know, HVAC changes, I, th things of that nature. So if so, you're really making quite a commitment when you allow a, you know, a medical office user to come into your retail center. Basically, you're seeing that from now on, that space is always going to be occupied by a medical office user. You know, if this particular tenant moves out, you know, I've got all this money invested in into the the upgrades there in that unit. Yeah, I want to get my money's worth as most I can get as much use out of, you know, those upgrades as I can. So you're, you're kind of locking yourself in, which, you know, maybe, you know, you do a, a cost benefit analysis, maybe it winds up that that's the right choice for that particular property. But I, my point being, it does give you pause to think it, it doesn't always make sense you know, to put a medical office user in your retail center. 
and, and just other things. I, depending on what the nature of the medical practice is, you know, you know, if you're, let's say that, uh, you know, it's a medical practice that has a certain reputation in the community and the unit right next to them opens up and you put in a tenant that doesn't necessarily fit with that image. You know that, I mean, that's going to be problematic and, and vice versa. Maybe the retail tenants, you know, if you're, if you're there having a cup of coffee, yeah, do you want somebody who's just come out of the, the medical office practice next door and is sick and coughing and maybe spreading coronavirus or whatever the pandemic of the day happens to be at that time? Do you want them coming, you know, into the, the coffee shop? I, I, I just think there are a number of issues that you have to take into consideration. That said, I mean, there's no question about it. We are seeing more and more medical practices in retail centers. So that, that is an ongoing concern. They're definitely encroaching into the, uh, you know, the supply of medical office space. Well, and I think given the amount of retail that we have, um, especially in the United States, uh, we have the largest amount of retail space per person in the Western world. Um, and we're certainly seeing a lot of defaults um, and a lot of empty storefronts. I think that will be an attractive option for some. But I think to your point, um, it's it, it does not come with its own without its own issues uh, in terms of costs, in terms of upgrades that may or may not have to take place for these spaces. And of course, I, I think a very interesting point of yours in terms of who's your neighbor, um, which I think is going to be an important concern going forward. But it's certainly medical retail seems to be something that is here. It's been developing over the last 10, 20 years that that seems to be a component of it. Do you see MOB environments emulating some of the things that retail has now as a way to be attractive? I mean, especially in terms of decentralization and how that's continuing, the ability for people to get basic services around healthcare without going to a hospital complex? Oh, definitely. No, maybe the past 10 years or so, there has very definitely been a move. Uh, medical office has been moving you know, out of the hospital, so to speak, and into the suburbs, just in more convenient locations uh, for the patients. And, you know, and again, a lot of this plays in uh, to advances in medical science and you know, technology and whatnot, which, you know, all of these things, they're sort of coming together to create this particular you know, point in time. But there's just, there have been so many advances in medical science that procedures that used to require a hospital visit can now be done on an outpatient basis. You know, it's no longer to, you know, to go to, to have surgery in the hospital and then have to stay there for several days after that. You know, for for example, you know, you could you could just you know go to uh, the medical office space there in the suburbs. You have a, a, a what is it non non uh, invasive surgery of some type that doesn't require a lot of uh, time to recuperate from it, and you in all likelihood you know you'll be up and about in a couple of days, so there's no need to to spend the night there. You have the procedure, you go home. I, that's been a huge change over the past you know, decade or so. But I, yeah, I mean, just to sort of underscore the point, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Going forward, I think we're going to see a lot more medical office, you know, very, very good quality medical office properties being developed outside of the CBD, you know, outside of the, you know, the hospital campuses. They're going to be moving closer out, you know, to the patients, just making it more convenient for them. 
and and maybe just to sort of tie it in to the idea of you know the retailization of uh, you know medical office space, you know, we may see some of that coming into medical office properties. You know, it might become more of a mixed use uh, type of property where there is some, there are some retail you know tenants that might complement the medical office. Uh, tenants who are there in the property. But I, I, I guess it comes back to that point of you just, you just have to maintain the right balance between the two. You addressed a particular risk that I found kind of interesting because at, at first glance, when you look at the demographic picture, the baby boomers are expanding. They're all getting old. Um, they're all kind of getting into that period of life where they're going to need five visits per year with the doctor on average. That's fantastic for demand. But then there's this much smaller cohort that's behind them, the the Gen Xers. Um, do you anticipate uh, some level of drop occurring over the next two decades because you have fewer uh, people aging uh, behind the boomers? Or do you think that there is something countering that? It has been the consensus of you know most market participants for years and years that that's exactly how it's going to play out. Because you know, the following generation, Gen X, is a much smaller demographic. And just going strictly by the numbers, I mentioned earlier that uh, currently there are about 72 million baby boomers in the United States. And if you look at Generation X, and let's only talk about the native-born uh, Gen Xers, there are only about 55 million of them. So it's, there's a huge difference there. But what's really interesting, and I think this is what a lot of people are failing, failing to take into consideration is that during the middle of the 20th century, some very significant changes were made to the immigration policies in the United States. I mean, essentially up until about 1965, uh, there were very restrictive immigration policies. They, I mean, even quotas uh, that, that basically clamped down on uh, immigrants coming to the United States. All of that was changed in 1965. Well, not, I, I don't want to overstate the issue, not all of it, but to a great extent, it was changed by a piece of legislation called the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. Now, obviously this is a coincidence, but you know that happens to be the exact same year that uh, Gen Xers, Generation X began, 1965. They, they go from uh, 1965 to 1980. So here's the thing. I mean, if you look at some of the charts that will be in the article, it's really striking. I mean, you, you look at the immigration trends and essentially, you know, all the action starts between 1970 and 1980. And, you know, the, the number of uh, immigrants coming into the United States, it just shoots through the roof, essentially. And essentially, you're talking about the exact same number uh, in terms of uh, demographics as the baby boomers. So if anything, I, there's there's not going to be any kind of significant drop off in demand because of any kind of population trends. You know, the all of the immigrants that we're talking about here, the 18 million or so that are the same age as Generation Xers. I, you know, we have to assume that that, you know, they're going to they're going to need just as many just as many medical services as anybody else. So combined, I mean, that's that, that's a lot of people, you know, and there's they're going to be driving that demand, you know, for years to come. So it's an inescapable fact of life that people get sick. 
they have to go see a doctor. They have to go to the hospital. They need, you know, medical care. So, I mean, fundamentally, I, that's what, you know, is just driving uh, the demand for medical office. And that's not going to change. As much as I hope that we do find a way for us never to get sick and, and never to die, um, I am pleased to see all the positive forces that are driving medical office. And I encourage everyone who has the time to really sit down with uh, Evan's article um, to kind of looking deeper in the demographic drivers of medical office for the next 10 to 20 years, which I think is very much within our investment time horizons. So Evan, I could listen to you talk about this for a lot longer, but we have run out of time, unfortunately. Um, so I look forward to uh, you know, everyone kind of reacting to your article and perhaps your next article uh, in, in the next issue as well, uh, given your kind of thoughtfulness and your ideas and, and your insights. Um, thank you for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Hey, you know, Gunnar, it was my pleasure. And I apologize if I geeked out a little bit too much on the numbers, but uh I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, the readers of the article especially are going to appreciate, uh, you know, being thorough and just, you know, really trying to drive home the point that, you know, there is support for these ideas because, you know, maybe I have some good ideas every now and then, but they're always, you know, well served if you have the, the information to back them up. Fantastic. Geeks, by the way, are always welcome here. So thank you, Evan. Um, and we'll talk soon. Before we close out completely, I want to make sure that we thank uh, AFIRE's underwriters who help support our programming throughout the year, whether virtual or in person. Um, and it's thanks to the generosity of groups like Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners that we're able to provide you with this podcast. Thank you all. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for listening.